Well, thank you, Lee. And uh, we finished up uh, 1 Corinthians in record time. And um, that was kind of like a joke, just not as funny. Uh, and well, we are jumping into Titus. I figured we'd uh, in this, uh, follow up a 16-chapter book with a three-chapter book. So we'll, uh, we'll try to be balanced. We'll, we'll move through this one uh, rapidly, except that we're only covering four verses today. The good news is Titus only has 46 verses. So uh, at that pace, it should only take us about 12 weeks. So no, just kidding. We'll cover more ground than that. But uh, um, I, I've chose, uh, as, I, as I'm constantly praying about where to go and uh, um, planning and things like that, the, the book of Titus was, was, was on my heart and uh, for uh, tying in also with, uh, that's kind of how the summer of service has, has come out and, and come upon us and Titus, because you'll see in Titus that, that we were saved to serve and that's the title of this, this series, if you will, on Titus, Saved to serve. And so I want to give us some opportunities to do that this summer corporately. I pray that you would find opportunities to do that individually as well. But as I as I look at our culture and, and as you look at our culture, I look at where we are as a church, I think you would agree that where we find ourselves is in a culture that is rapidly uh, changing, is vastly different from even a generation ago. Things, things that were just culturally accepted as, as right, things that culturally were viewed as wrong, are no longer seen that way. Everything seems to be up for grabs. Everything seems to be up for however you want to view it personally, whatever you want to do. And uh, we are not, it seems that not only are we moving away from the Bible, we're moving away from the Bible aggressively and rapidly. And, and I was, you know, what once was shameful and, and disgraceful would have, would have been hidden, would, would have wanted nobody to know about. Now, to admit you live that way and actively live that way is, is applauded. They'll throw a parade for you. You know, I, I was watching uh, some of the draft and, and there, there's, a, there's a player who uh, has openly admitted that, that he is a homosexual and... They thought it was the greatest thing in the world. They're, everybody on there is applauding him for being so brave and so bold and all this stuff. I, I'm, t- I'm just telling you, I was so I turned the channel. It takes a lot for me to turn off a sports center. But that's the culture we live in. It's, it's, not, it's not wrong or shameful. It's brave to live a life that is in direct opposition to the Word of God. That's the culture we live in. It's brave. You know, we're all in here sinners. The difference is, I, I, I'm, I'm ashamed of my sin. I hate my sin. I repent of my sin. To, to live in our sin is foolish. It's not brave. It's foolish at best. And, and this is the culture that we live in. And, and, and because of that, we individually, we corporately as a church, we, we, we face some serious questions, Not, namely this, how can we live holy, separated lives to the glory of God in this culture? Given that that's the cultural climate, the temperature that we live in, how do we live holy? When, when conversations like this come up and our friends are, are possibly applauding these individuals for being so brave, what do we say? How do we respond when they say, hey, what do you think? 
How, how do we, as 1 Peter 3.15 says, how do we give a defense for the hope that we have, but yet do it with gentleness and do it with respect? Because my flesh, I, I don't like what my flesh always feels about these things. I want to give a defense. I want to give an answer gently. I want to do it respectfully, but I, but I want to stand firm on the Word of God and in my allegiance and loyalty to Christ. I don't want to cave at that moment. I don't want to send the message that it's okay. It's not okay, and it's not okay because I'm judging him. It's not okay, or them, or anyone. Even in my own life, my sin. My sin is not okay because God has already judged that it's not okay. I, I don't have to judge my own sin. God has already judged my sin. He's already given a verdict. I, you know, he's like the, 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 the panel of, of the jury that they give the verdict. The judge just simply says, hey, you're guilty. It's already been rendered. So how do, we, how do we live in a culture that is more and more actively opposed to the Word of God, and yet how do we live according to the Word of God without caving? How, without bowing down, without bending, without lowering the standard? Because we will have opposition. We won't be liked if we stand on this Word of God. That's just the bottom line. Just We need to get past that. We will not... If we stand according to the word of God, the world will not like us. Okay. And the answer, the answer, uh, the answer that Paul gives to Titus, and I think the answer that he gives to us is found here in this letter. And that's why I've chosen Titus, because I think it speaks to where we are as a church, to where we are as a church and a culture. All of that is covered here in Titus. To give you a little background Sometime uh, about this book, sometime after, the, after Paul's first and, and second imprisonment, Paul visited uh, Crete with Titus, and he left him there to resolve some problems. The church had some, some issues. Uh, if you, as you learn more and more about the culture that we live in, um, that they were in rather in Titus, you'll understand why they had the, the problems, but the church was struggling. It was struggling to get a foothold in, in this pagan culture, it needed some order. It needed some, some godly men to kind of guide it, to navigate it through this time. It, it, if you don't know anything about Crete, Crete is an island about 160 um, miles long. It, it's between 7 and 35 miles wide. Um, when I was in college, uh, through our humanities uh, program, I had a chance to, to go over to uh, Europe and uh, spent some time over in Europe. And part of that trip was... a uh, uh, we visited some islands in the, in the Mediterranean there, and, and Crete was one of those islands. It's a beautiful place. And in Paul's day, it, was a, it, it had some struggles. It, it had some major stuff going on. The culture was not a good culture. You, you can look down in, in, in 1 Corinthians, I mean, and 1 Corinthians, hello. We've been in there so long, we're going to be in there forever. In Titus 1.12, look at what it says. One of them, this is, this, is the, this is the characterization of, of the Cretans who lived here on the island. One of themselves, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, glazy gluttons. That, that's a pretty good statement. Hey, tell me about Crete. They're liars, they're evil, and they're lazy gluttons. Besides that, they're great people. Besides that, that that's the culture. 
in, in, um, scholars will tell you that uh, the Cretans were such uh, notorious liars that in the Greek language, there was a specific word for a liar, and it was, it was literally you were called to play the Cretan. It meant to lie. You were a liar. To play the Cretan. That's the culture. That's the culture that, that Paul and Titus are trying to establish and, and get a foothold for the church. And, and a testimony to the greatness and the power of God. The gospel had somehow taken root in this rocky soil, in this, in this nasty, sinful soil of Crete. The gospel had taken root. There were churches there having that spread the gospel all the way back. You can go to Acts and you can see where the individuals heard the gospel and made their way back to Crete and started churches and the gospel spread but they brought just like corinthians you can imagine the baggage that they brought into the church you can imagine all the baggage the false doctrine all the stuff that they brought in all the stuff the 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 thoughts the mentalities the 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 choices all the baggage that they brought in that needed to be reprogrammed that need they that they needed to repent of and change And in response to this, Paul writes a letter to Titus and the churches, and he gives them instruction on how they are to uh, operate and gain a foothold in this pagan culture. And that's what this letter is writing about. And if I were to summarize the letter in just one sentence, it would be this. In order, and I think it's on your handout, in order for God's people in in a pagan world, in order to be God's people in a pagan world, we who are saved by God's grace... Grace much it must engage in good deeds under the authority of the local church. If we're if we're to be God's people in a pagan world, we who are saved by God's grace must engage in good deeds under the context of the local church. We've got to be involved in a local church. We've got to be a part of a group of believers. But we have to engage in good deeds. We have to engage the culture. And, and you'll see many themes throughout this book: salvation by grace. Deeds, good deeds, shows up all throughout the book. The authority of the local church is seen in this letter. The need for sound doctrine and how that shows itself in godly behavior. It starts with sound doctrine. You'll see that theme. If I were to summarize the book for you, just to get you a, to have a kind of a handle on where we're going in these three quick chapters, you'll see there on your, on your handouts, chapter 1 deals with character of church leaders. Chapter 1 is going to deal with the character of of church leaders, character. And, and, and I would ask, I, I, as you read this, think about yourself. Do I exhibit the character that's explained here, that's described here? Could I be seen, would I be eligible to be a church leader? Would I be one of the people that step up and God uses to lead and guide and direct a church? Chapter, d- chapter 2 deals with the lives of church members. So you have the character of church leaders in chapter 1. We're going to see the lives of church members in chapter 2. And in chapter 3, we're going to see, it's going to talk about the testimony of the church before the world. The testimony. And, and chapter 1 builds to, builds to chapter 2. It builds to chapter 3. The lives we live become our testimony to the world. The lives that we live, that is our testimony to the world. Is God great or not? Is He awesome or not? Is He worthy or not? That's our testimony. And this book does a great job of blending doctrine and application. Doctrine and application. Just three chapters, 46 verses. But they are going to wed doctrine and deeds. 
It's going to wed belief and behavior, and it's going to wed creed and conduct because those go together. What, what you believe, what you believe will always play out in our lives. Please hear me. You can say what you believe all you want, but what you truly believe will be shown in how you live your life. We will always, always, always live out our beliefs, no matter what we say or pretend to believe. And, and, and again, we're going to see in here a lot about deeds. And, and, and um, you know, I don't want us to go to think this is a, a legalistic book, and I'm going to explain that today. He, he, we cannot simultaneously, here's the point, we can't at the same time make much of God and make much of ourselves at the same time. We're going to have to choose. Am I going to live my life for God? And His glory? Or am I going to live my life for me and my glory? We're, we're going to have to choose. And that's what Paul is getting at here. And, and, and God's character, as we, as we study God's Word and as we are tra- informed and, and we begin to be transformed, that, that's God's desire. Is that Not that we would just be able to know this book, that we would be transformed by this book. It's God's Word in us, the Spirit of God filling us, and the result of that is a changed life. God's Word begins to be evident through us, through a changed life. He wants to change us. God's character begins to be lived out in us and through us. You see, we're adopted children. My children, for better or worse, Bradley and Sarah, they reflect the character of their mother and father, Chris and Karen Basham. They reflect the character because they're our children. For better or worse, they look like us. Uh, for better or worse, they act like us. You know, Bradley the other day was complaining about combing his hair. I said, well, just enjoy it while you got it. Enjoy it while you got it, because on both sides, it ain't going to be there for long, brother. So just enjoy it while you got it. But see, we as Christians have been adopted. So you know how we begin to look like our Father? Is we start acting like our Father. See, the Word of God in us begins to produce in us the character of our adopted Father. And we begin to look like our Father. See, because we're adopted. And that's what Paul is getting at. Like it or not, again, we live out what we truly believe. We live it out every day. And that's what Paul is getting at here. What we believe will be lived out. If we don't feel strongly about it, we are not going to live it out. And, and the proof is in the pudding of our lives. Sanctification, Paul's going to talk about it here. That's the process of ridding ourselves of all these false views and all this stuff that we believe that's not biblical. All the lies, all the, all the false beliefs, all the, the ways we've been deceived. That's why we stay in God's Word to rid ourselves of these things. And Titus is seeking here to set the church in order. And he's going to start by, by, by giving it some godly leaders. And that's where I want to, that's where I want to start today. And, and, and Titus, or Paul rather, to Titus, he, he's very wise. And, and that the first thing I want you to see here is, it, is it, he begins with the authority of church leaders. The authority of church leaders. He's going to set the church in order. And the first thing he does is help them to understand, the readers of this letter, the authority upon which he writes. The authority. 
Because if you're going to be responsible for a task, you need the authority to do that task. I think any of us who have been in a position where we were responsible for something, but we did not have the authority to do anything about it, that's a very frustrating position to be in. And so, so Paul, from the immediately in verses 1 through 4, he is, talks about the authority of church leaders. And what Paul does here is establish authority. Not, not only for himself, but for Titus. You see, Paul is over here and Titus is over here. And Paul writes this letter to help all the readers understand that Titus comes with full authority. And their authority, what Paul does is show them, and these are truths for us, their authority was rooted in their master. Because it was on his behalf that they acted. Their authority was rooted in who their master was. And, and, and that's why Paul starts out with, with, as Lee read, he says, Paul, a bondservant of God and apostle, an apostle of Jesus Christ for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth. All of, all of this theology is setting the stage so that they have the authority, so everyone understands they have the authority to do what they're going to do. And, and put, yourself in, put yourself in Titus's shoes. He, he's... He's young. He, he's, he, it's a very immature church. There's a lot of factions. There's a lot of false teachers. They have already made their, they've already made a headway in the church. We'll see later on that they had already disrupted entire families through this false teaching. There, there was a whole families had been destroyed and disrupted through these false teachers. That's the situation that Titus is sent into. They needed something, Titus needed something firm to stand upon to give him authority not only to do what he had to do, but to say what he was going to say to them. He needed authority, and that's what Paul gives him is authority. And, and what he says is, anybody, anybody who is opposed to Titus is opposed to the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what he's saying. He's acting upon the behalf of the Lord Jesus Christ. So if you oppose him, you're opposing the Lord. Just know that. And that, that's what he gives him, that authority. And, and, but this goes way beyond. And what I want us to see today is it goes way beyond just Paul and Titus. See, we have that same authority when we stand upon God's word. We have full authority to stand upon God's word, to act upon his behalf as he's commanded in these scriptures, and to say what he's already said. We have full authority to do that. And Paul is teaching not only Titus, but he's teaching us that we have an awesome God, a mighty God who has given us full authority. So go serve. Go live boldly. He, he's, telling, he's telling, not only Paul is telling Titus, but he's telling us, you want to be a great leader? Here's how. You want to be used of God in a mighty way? Here's how. And the first thing he says in regards to the authority of leaders, is this. Know whose you are. Paul knew whose he was. Why could Paul be so bold? Why could Paul do what he did? Why could Paul suffer through one, through two Roman imprisonments, through shipwrecks, through beatings, through all those stuff? Paul knew whose he was. He knew who he belonged to. And Think about for a second. Everything, every credential that Paul could have mentioned here in verse 1. Think about all the credentials that Paul could have rattled off to establish his authority. And yet he mentions nothing about those. 
All he mentions is this. I'm a bondservant of God. I'm a bondservant of God. Look with me at Philippians 3 for a second, just to give you a brief taste of all the credentials that Paul could have shared. Philippians 3, verse 3 through 8. For we are the true circumcision whose worship in the Spirit of God, who worship in the Spirit of God and the glory of Christ, and put no confidence in the flesh. Look, look at this. Although I myself might have confidence even in the flesh. If anyone else has a mind, Paul is writing this, if anyone else has a mind to put confidence in the flesh, I far more. And look, he goes through these credentials. This is a who's who of a Jewish son, circumcised the eighth day of the nation of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, of the Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness which is in the law, found blameless. Paul had a lot of credentials. He laid them all down to, to, to Christ when, when, when Christ saved him. Paul surrendered everything as a non-believer and served Christ. He knew whose he was. There was no doubt. Paul simply saw himself as a slave. That's the point. He saw himself as a slave of God. And that fact summed up everything you needed to know about Paul. You don't even know nothing else other than this. I'm a slave of God. And that word bondservant, that word, that word is, is, a, is a, that's a flowery word for slave. It's slave. The Greek word there is doulos. It's a slave. Paul, Paul knew whose he was. It encompassed everything. The title of slave hung over his life, and that word, that slave, that title, defined everything about Paul's life. He was a slave to God. There was no arguing about it. He was a slave to God. There was no compartmentalization. It was no, well, I'll do this for Paul and this for God. I'll do this. No, no, I, I work for Chris, but I do church for, for God. I, I do sports for Chris, but I... No, no, no. It was slave. All areas. And God had mastery over every area of Paul's life. He had mastery over every area. And the title of slave also meant this, that Paul served under God's authority. You see, in that day in the Roman culture, to, you, to be, their Roman slaves were very um, uh, peripheral. I mean, it was, it was everywhere. There were slaves everywhere. And, and to be a slave in that sense was an honor. It was an honor in some degrees. It was, you didn't serve begrudgingly. You didn't serve out of just a sense of, well, I have to do this. It was an honor. You can go all the way back to Exodus 20. There was, a, there was a time where slaves would be set free, and if they served a good master, they would, um, they would put an awl in their ear, which showed, hey, I'm free, but I voluntarily serve my master because he's a good master. That's the idea that was carried over here. It was an honor to be God's slave. An honor. And I, and I understand, we, I'm sensitive when I say that. We live in a culture that has that is butchered this, and it comes with a lot of baggage. I get that. But what Paul is saying here is it was an honor to be a slave. He was proud to be God's slave. Proud. And This is the only time, it's interesting, usually Paul says he's a bondservant of Christ. This is the only time that he mentions that he's a slave to God. Other times he says Christ, and he did this purposefully. See, there was a heavy um, Jewish uh, um, conglomerate in this area. And so what Paul does, he says he's a slave of God. You know what, he, you know what it does when he says that? It puts him on equal footage with Moses. It puts him on equal footing with David. 
It puts him on equal footing with all of the Old Testament saints that those Jews would have appealed to. Paul is saying, hey, you, 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 you applaud them, you're loyal to them. Hey, follow me because I'm equal. I'm a slave of God just like they were. That phrase, that phrase that Paul uses was used for almost all of the mighty men of God in the Old Testament. The Moseses, the Davids. They were slaves to Yahweh. They were slaves to God. Paul is saying, hey, you want authority, guys? I got authority. And again, the word here is doulos. The Greek word is doulos. You'll see it on your board there so you can spell it. And again, he was at the total disposal of his master. Everything about his life, totally disposed to God. Totally surrendered. Just like Daniel saying this morning, I surrender all. That, that's what it meant to be a slave of God. I surrender all. It meant he had no life of his own, he had no will of his own, no plans of his own, no goals of his own. It was all surrounded, it was all focused on glorifying God. Everything revolved around making much of God, making much of his master. But, but it was a submission again. It was based out of love. It was based out of honor. It was not a begrudging thing. It was not a, oh my God. No, it was, hey, we get to serve the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It's a joy. He, he knew that he served the greatest master in all the world. It was a joy. Look, look back at 1 Corinthians 6. You just thought we were done, 1 Corinthians. We're going to keep going back there. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 19 and 20. Paul says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you have been bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body. You have been bought, believer. You are not your own. You have been purchased, and that purchase price was the blood of Jesus Christ. Why? Because in God's word, he said, the penalty for sin is death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. And God, in his love, sent his son, and his son paid the penalty that every single one of us deserved to pay. God's son paid it for us. And you know what he says? By faith, call upon me and I will apply that gift. I will apply that penalty to your life and you will be redeemed, believer. Sinner, you're an enemy, but yet through faith in Jesus Christ, you become an adopted son, full heir. But you were bought. There was a purchase price to be paid. We, we are servants of God. As believers, we are servants. We are slaves. We're free, but we're free to serve in a way that we never, ever were free to serve when we were sinners. Look, look, what, look at Romans 6, 19 through 22. And this will help make this point well, I, I hope. Anyway, that's my goal. Romans 6, 19 through 22. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. Again, Paul is the writer of Romans. He says... Because of the weakness of your flesh, for just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you deriving from the things which you're now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. You see, the wages of sin is death. But now, having been freed from sin... And enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. See, Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus. You see it right here. 
For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life. That's what we traded in in Christ. We traded in death for eternal life. But we also traded in slavery to sin to slavery to God. We're slaves. And and Paul, it's interesting here, in verse 20 and 22... Paul says that we are free. In verse 20, he says we're free. In verse 22, he says we're free. But notice in verse 20, 20, it says we were free. And in verse 22, it says we have been set free. And and here's the difference. This is key. Because as we read Titus, we're going to see a lot about deeds. And I don't want you to have a misconception about deeds. We need to understand where these deeds come from. Because I'm sure if you're like me, I've read that verse many, many times before and just passed right over it, except this time. And, and, and here's the difference. On May 8, 1976, I was born. That's my birthday. I, I, I just turned 38 a few days ago, by the grace of God. Guess what? I was born a slave to sin. I was a slave to sin. May 8, 1976, the second I was born, really the second I was conceived nine months earlier, sin. Sin. And, and, and I, was, I was free from righteousness. There was nothing righteous in me. It required, but that sin required no action on my part. I naturally sinned. My parents can attest to that fact. I naturally sinned because I was born a sinner. See, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. The problem is my heart. It's not my behavior. And in 1992, at Amos P. Godby High School, God, by His grace, awakened me to the fact that I was a sinner destined for hell, and by His grace, He saved me. Okay? He saved me. The blood of Jesus Christ was applied to my life. No longer death was the penalty for my life. It was eternal life. And from that moment on, from that moment on, I was set free, but not in the sense that we think of freedom. That's what we have to see here. In that moment, my salvation or my slavery was transferred from sinner to God. Up to that moment in 1992, I was a slave to sin. Now, I, I, I didn't do everything that I could have done as a sinner. Hear me. I was still a slave to sin. But that moment... I was transferred from, from a field. Imagine two fields. This field is dominated by sin. That's the field I lived in by birth. God took me and transferred me into this field that said, Hey, you're still slave, but my name hangs over that field. You're a slave to me now. I bought you. And, and I became in that moment a slave to God, but now... Not a slave to lawlessness, a slave to righteousness. Do you understand that? Before, I was a slave to sin and lawlessness. Now, I'm a slave to God, the outcome being righteousness. Righteousness. In that moment, I became free from a cruel master who offered death. I became a slave to a wonderful master who offers eternal life. But I'm still a slave. I'm still a slave. I'm still a servant. And and in a very real sense, I'm free now to serve Christ because before I wasn't. That's where the freedom lies. I can boldly walk into God's chamber and call Him Abba, Father. That's a freedom that the world knows nothing about. 
And before as a sinner, I could not do that. I've been adopted. But see, as a Christian, I'm still a slave. And you see in verse 19, it says lawlessness to lawlessness. That was the result. And then it says righteousness to sanctification. As I read that, I think, well, if it says lawlessness to lawlessness, shouldn't it say righteousness to righteousness? I mean, I was a math guy, and I'm thinking, okay, if it's A to A here, it's got to be A to A over there for it to equal. And some of you are thinking, who cares? Probably rightfully so, but stick with me. The point is this. Verse 19, slaves of righteousness in verse 19 is parallel to slave to God in verse 22. And here's what all this teaches us. Our slavery to God is the source of our righteousness. That's, what I, that's why I say all of that. My slavery to God is the source of my righteousness. My slavery to righteousness, that is the actions that flow from the source. It, it all boils down. My actions all flow from the one to whom I'm a slave of. That's the point. And in Titus, again, the salvation we have received in Christ leads to a life of godliness and service to our master. God saved us to serve him, not just to take us to heaven. Salvation is not just so I can punch my ticket to heaven and then live how I want to live. Salvation is, I'm going to set you free from a cruel, harsh, nasty master whose name is sin, and I'm going to set you free to me, a loving father. And I'm going to empower you to live in the power of my character, and in doing so, guess what? We begin to look like our adoptive father. My character changes. It begins to look like the Word of God. And in doing that, I reflect my adopted father. Do you, do you see, I say all that, do you see where good deeds comes in? This is not pull up your bootstraps and just get her done. This is live according to the word of God, and in doing so, I naturally begin to reflect my heavenly father. My character naturally takes on that of my adoptive father. That's the Christian life. That's That's it. God saves us to serve Him, and in that, it is a grace-filled slavery that motivates, powers, and accomplishes sanctification. Sanctification is that process of me getting rid of Chris and taking on more and more of the character of God. That's sanctification. But it's all slavery-filled. It's all motivated in salvation. It's, it's motivated by whom I'm a slave to. And I gladly take on that character because why? He's a good master. And, and our sitting in subjection to the commands of God, to the scriptures of God, that is an effort of producing sanctification and joy and, and hope in our life. But, but our effort is not to earn favor with God. See, I do that. I subject myself to this word. I put myself under this word. I study this word. I, I get around other guys and gals to study this word. Not to earn favor with God, but it's instead because I have been made a slave to the greatest master in all the world and I want to look like him because he's called me to look like him. And the Christian life is me going around exhibiting the character of God and in doing so making much of my adoptive father. That's where good works come in. It's all sourced in salvation. It's all sourced in God's work in us. And when we read Titus, you're going to see the mention 
of deeds a lot. 1.16 is going to mention deeds, 2.6, They're all going to talk about good deeds. And if we're not careful, we're going to sit here and think of a whole laundry list of things that I've got to do. I've got to grip my teeth and I've got to do these things. That's not the response. These things ought to be flowing out of a believer's life. We ought to seek these things out. God's sovereignty producing it in us. My responsibility is I avail myself to it. They work hand in hand. And when we read Titus, what I do not want is for any of us to think that Titus is about legalism, that, that, that Titus is just trying to make us busy, that Titus is about trying harder, that Titus is about mustering up the fortitude to be better on our own. Titus is about slavery to Christ. Titus is about us recognizing as believers, I am a slave to Christ, and that is the source of everything in my life. The source of my master. It's about obedience that leads to sanctification, that leads to joy, that leads to Jesus Christ being magnified. Why? Because you want to know what about Chris is? Look at my master. Chris, why are you doing what you're doing? Look at my master. Why you live like that, Chris? It's the character of my master. Why, why do you have joy? It's the character of my master. Why do you have hope? Because the character of my master. It's all sourced in salvation. It's all sourced in who my master is. It's all sourced in the fact that I am not my own, that I have been bought with a price. And my actions and obedience flow from this relationship. You can look at John 15, and he says, Apart from me, you can do nothing. Nothing. He's the source. You, you go out there in that fellowship hall, there's a, there's a, a poster on the, on the wall, and it's there on purpose, and it's that of a tree. And it shows the roots and the trunk and the branches. And the roots, the roots are, the, are the abiding. That, for that tree to flourish, you look at Isaiah, we're oaks of righteousness. You look at Psalm 1, they would be like a tree firmly planted by streams of water. In order for that tree to live, what must it have? Deep roots. Got to have roots. That's the abiding. And when those roots abide in the soil, guess what happens? A tree starts to grow up. And that trunk is the connection. And then when a, when a, when a Christian is abiding and connecting with other believers, guess what? They begin to produce a, a, a canopy that other believers and other non-believers can run to and find shade and can find fruit and find all those things. Why, though? It all goes back to my master. It all goes back to where I'm abiding, to who I'm a slave to. In order for a tree to flourish, it's got to be a slavery to what? Water and soil. It's got to stay in them. It's the same with you and I. We're slaves to it. It's not a bad thing. No one looks at the tree and says, oh, poor pitiful tree. He's got to stay in the ground or he dies. That's awful. No. We've got to stay in the word or we die. You look at James, he says, faith without works is what? It's dead, it's useless. It serves no purpose. We've been saved to serve. Look, look with me at Matthew 16. Matthew 16, verses 24 and, and 25. Then, the, then Jesus said to the disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, listen to this, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, 
But whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. See, I lose my life as a believer in making much of my master. And guess what? Jesus says, you do that, you'll find it for all eternity. You lose your life in making much of me, your master. Guess what? Think about this. What master wouldn't do everything they could possibly do for that slave that spent every day, every moment seeking to make much of that master? You think he's going, oh, no. He's going to love that slave. He's going to take care of that slave. And it's an honor. We serve a great master. And, and this is why Paul was so effective. He knew whose he was. He knew why he existed. He had a single-minded focus and goal. And like Paul, we must see Christ as supreme and ourselves as slaves. If we're going to be effective as believers, we've got to see Christ as supreme and us as slaves. And the result, the result is going to, we will serve Christ with undivided hearts, but we will serve one another with humility. Why? Because we've been bought with a price. Because we're making much of our master. So the application, real quick, application. How about you? Do you share that single-mindedness? Do you view your life as your life to do whatever you want with, or do you view your life as Christ because you've been bought with a price? Are, are all areas of your life, do you seek, do you want to surrender all areas of your life or, to Christ? Or are there areas of your life that you're living for your glory and how you want and according to your rules? Or have you surrendered them to Christ? That's the application for us. What, what areas of your life might you be living for your glory rather than God's glory? What areas of your life are you living so that people will applaud you versus applauding Christ? We're, we're slaves. And until we see that, our impact in this culture, our impact in this world, is going to be lessened. Because we're going to live lives that are trying to make much of me and trying to make much of God at the same time. And it can't happen. It can't happen. God said it doesn't work that way. Is it possible that maybe we're trying to serve the world and God at the same time? Is it possible that's why we are where we are and, and maybe not having the impact we ought to be having? Because we, maybe we're serving the world and God. Maybe if people look at our lives, they don't know who's, who we're a slave to, God or the world. They don't know who our master is. We, we must know whose we are and why we're here. And, and that leads, that leads uh, if you find yourself wondering about those questions, if you find yourself struggling with those questions, here's what I would tell you to do. Repent. Ask God to, uh, to forgive you. Admit those areas to God and ask Him by His grace to help you surrender those areas to the glory of God rather than yourself. Ask Him. Repent and ask him. But secondly, he didn't, not only knew whose he was, he knew what he existed to do. If I ask some of us, what's the purpose of a Christian? We come up with all different kinds of answers. The, the, Paul says, not only was he a bondservant of God, he was an apostle of Jesus Christ. The term apostle meant messenger. He was a messenger. He was a sent one. God had given him the message. And the message was about Jesus Christ. 
the message was repent and believe upon Jesus Christ. And, and this term, again, just like slave, to be a messenger of Christ, that came with a lot of dignity. It came with a lot of honor. I mean, he was carrying the king's message. I mean, think about it this. If the president gave you a sealed envelope and a message and said, hey, take this to that gentleman, that would be an honor. That's essentially here. He, he is a messenger. And yet, but not only that, you come in the authority of the one who sent the message. It's not Paul's authority. It's the one who sent the message. And, and what, was the, what, is that, what is that message? What's that message? Well, number one, number one, we see here, it's evangelism. Paul shares the mission. You want to know what the message is, the mission? He says, number one, it's evangelism. The, what we're to be about, what, we, what Paul had been sent to do is the same message, it's the same purpose that we exist for, for seeking and saving the lost. He says, for the faith of those chosen of God and the knowledge of the truth, which is in according to godliness. Salvation of the lost is what we're to be about. Seek and save the lost for the glory of God. We're messengers. Look at, look at 1 Timothy uh, 2.10. You can flip back a couple pages to the left. 1 Timothy 2.10. He says... Yeah, yeah, that's... Is that it? Yeah. He says... But rather by means of good works, as is proper for women, making a claim to godliness. He's talking about, uh, I don't think that's the verse I was looking for, first of all. But he does talk about good works and a claim to godliness, so it kind of fits. But Paul knew why he existed. And, And Paul's mission was to relay the gospel. It was to seek and save the lost. It was to introduce them to the fact that they are sinners and there was a, a, a penalty to that sin, but yet the payment had been made by Jesus Christ and they could be relieved of their penalty by placing their faith. 2 Timothy, there you go. 2 Timothy 2.10. All right, for this reason, yes, thank you, Jay. For this reason, I endure all things for the sake of those who were chosen so they may be obtained the salvation which is in Christ Jesus, and with it eternal glory. Thank you, that's the one. Second Timothy. I'll change that in the, in the notes here somewhere. Not, I'm just going to throw these things away when I'm done anyway, but I'll change it anyway. Paul knew why he existed. For salvation. His message was very simple. He wasn't trying to convince the people with flowery language. He was simply saying, here's the gospel. You stay in your sin, you die. You receive eternal life through Jesus Christ, you live. Evangelism. But, but not only that, maturation. Evangelism, but maturation. He says, back in uh, Titus 1, he says, In the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, promised long ago, at the proper time manifested even His word, in the proclamation of which I was entrusted, according to the commandment of our Savior, to Titus, my true child in the common faith, Grace and peace from our God and Father in Christ Jesus, our Lord. But he says what? The knowledge of the truth. They were in for the faith of chosen, but for the knowledge of the truth. Someone, once someone believed Paul's message, he would make sure they grew in a knowledge of the truth. They matured. And what does he say the result was? It was godliness. The result of growing up in the truth, it was godliness. Why do you want your kids to mature so they, be, so they get act like adults? Grow up in regards to the faith. 
You can look at Ephesians 4. The whole goal is maturity so that we would not be tossed around by every wind and wave and trickery of doctrine, so that we'd be mature, unmovable. We saw that in 1 Corinthians 15, in, in the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. He says, be steadfast and movable. Be mature. You think about the il- illustration of a tree. A, a young tree can be blown over, but you get those roots deep down, those roots go deep in the soil, that tree's not getting blown over very easily. That's the way we are to be as believers, mature, grown up. And, and, and listen to this. I read a couple quotes that I'll share real quickly about maturity and about deeds and about how they, they go hand in hand with, with salvation. Listen to this. A profession of the truth which allows an individual to live in ungodliness is a spurious confession. To think you can confess Jesus and then go on living as you've always lived is a lie. The Holy Spirit living in you won't allow that. Vance Havner, back in the 60s, said this. We are challenged, this was in the 60s. We are challenged these days, but not changed. We are convicted, but not converted. We hear, but do not. And thereby we deceive ourselves. Just coming to church and hearing God's word doesn't make you a Christian no more than being in a car lot makes you a car. It's not, it's not like that. There's got to be a conversion. We, we cannot separate salvation from holiness and from godliness. We have been saved to serve. We have been saved to, and given the power to take on. Once you're saved, you will take on the character of your adopted father. That's the whole point, because he gets the glory. God gets the glory. Look, at, look with me real quick at 1 Thessalonians 4.7. I'm confident that's the verse. 1 Thessalonians 4.7. For God has not called us for the purpose of impurity, but in sanctification. Why has God called us? Sanctification. That we'd grow up and be more and more like Him. We are chosen to be sanctified. If your life does not reflect evidence of being saved, evidence of godliness, there's a serious problem. We've been saved to be sanctified. And being Christian, being a believer, means that there should be evidence of our life of salvation and grace. There ought to be evidence. And and, and he says that. He says we have been entrusted in Titus. We've been entrusted with this gospel. It is a trust. It is a gift. Go share it in the hope of eternal life, which God, who cannot lie, which was, again, contradictory to their gods and their culture, promised long ago. But he talks about godliness. We've been entrusted with the responsibility to share this gospel and then to grow up those who receive the gospel. That's the goal of everything we do here at this church, to grow us up as believers into maturity so we can go seek and save the lost well. We are all sent ones. There is a very technical sense for apostle, those who saw the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus Christ. There were 12 of them. Twelve apostles, but in a general sense, we too are sent ones. We're sent ones. We exist. We have a mission and a message to take to the world. And we are to grow up in that message ourselves. So I challenge us, don't get distracted as to why we're here. Do not get distracted as to why you're here. And don't be intimidated by a culture that is opposed to us being here. Don't be distracted and don't be intimidated.
When, when, you, when you and I speak the word of God, you can speak it with full confidence, with full authority. You're standing on the word of God. Speak it boldly. Speak it confidently. When you stand up to sin, do it graciously, do it respectfully, but do it confidently. Why? Because God has already rendered the verdict. He's rendered it. So, so the application, and we'll close. We have a mission, and we have a message before us. How are you doing? How are you doing on your mission, and how are you doing on your message? Are, are, you, are you confident? Would you say right now that you're confident in speaking God's word? Do, do you speak it with authority? Or do you kind of like... Be confident. Are, are, how well do you know the Word? That's going to affect how confident you are in speaking the Word. What, what, what is the message? If, if, if we would ask your kids, uh, you know, sometimes the, the schools will send home things. You've probably gotten them as parents, and they'll ask your kids at school a bunch of questions, and they'll write in the answers. Well, they did that for Mother's Day, and it's always comical to, to read the answers. And, and one of the questions was, uh, they asked Bradley, what is your mom's favorite um, pastime? And Bradley said, relaxing. <laughs> relaxing. Was, but, you know, those kids, they're honest. You can fool the rest of the world. You ain't going to fool those kids. They see you relaxing. I'm going to hold that. I'm going to remember that one down the road. But, no, I'm just kidding. Just kidding. It's Mother's Day. We'll let her relax today for a little while, so... But when's the last time? Let me ask you this. If your kids, if we asked your kids what your life was about, what would they say? Hey, what's Doug Chinchar all about? What, what would they say? Hey, Riley, when he's old enough to talk and tell, what's Todd, what's Daddy all about? What's the focus of Daddy's life? What would they say? If we asked you guys whose kids or old enough to give an answer, what would they say? What, what's mommy and daddy all about? What's the mission of our lives? When's the last time that you could say that you verbally shared the gospel? When's the last time you verbally shared the gospel with somebody? Not praise God, not just mention God's name, verbally shared the gospel. That's our message. That's what we ought to be about. You have all authority, believer, to speak with confidence. But do it gently. Do it respectfully. And do it because you've been bought with a price. And we serve the greatest master who has ever lived. And it is an honor and a privilege to bear the title of Christian. But it comes with a cost. Not only for the one who bought us, but it comes with a cost for us that we give up our lives for the one who bought us. I pray that we do that. And I pray that if you're visiting here, you'd stick around and we could help you in that walk. If you've been coming here a long time, get involved in a small group. We can help you with that walk so that we could grow up and we would all be confident and immovable. Let's pray.